We're currently developing this technology for space exploration. Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success, and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. Avi has written eight books and 800 papers on a wide range of topics. In his latest book, Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth, he lays out a controversial theory that our solar system was recently visited by an advanced alien technology from a distant star. He's the founding director of Harvard's Black Hole Initiative. He serves as chair of the Board of Physics and Astronomy of the National Academies. He is the longest serving chair of Harvard's Department of Astronomy. In 2012, Time Magazine selected Avi as one of the 25 most influential people in space. He's a former member of the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology at the White House. I'll leave you with this before we get into the interview. Avi says, when you are not ready to find exceptional things, you will never discover them. Avi, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thanks for having me. I'm really grateful you're here. Avi, will you tell me, please, what is life about? Well, that's an excellent question. Uh, what is the meaning of life uh, to which... Um, I do not have a good answer. So if we ever find a, a, a much more advanced civilization that they thought about this uh, for a billion years or more, I would like to ask them. I'm worried that uh, they might be silent in response because there is no meaning to life. Uh, you just live through and things happen. You know, that that's the simplest approach. That's the approach that uh, animals take and uh, uh, you know, you can enjoy the experience. You can uh, eat good food. You can try and understand uh, what nature is all about. So, that, uh, you know, the, the good food is a physical uh, pleasure and, uh, and understanding the world is an intellectual pleasure that animals do not share with us. And, you know, and you can have good friends with whom you share the experiences. And um, I think that's good enough. Uh, you shouldn't expect for more. Mm. Thank you. Avi, who are you? <laughs> uh, I'm pretty much uh, the collection of, uh, uh, you know, circumstances that brought me here. Um, so I was born on a farm uh, and uh, as a kid, I used to collect eggs every afternoon and I connected very much with uh, nature because uh, I was on a farm and uh, I would take uh, philosophy books to the hills of the village and, uh, and read them. I was mostly interested in the deepest questions we have uh, about life and philosophy addresses them but doesn't give uh, the answers. Uh, however, it gives you a perspective that helped me a lot in terms of my science because uh, I have a broader view and that is an advantage uh, when you deal with, uh, you know, venturing into areas that others do not explore. So uh, it served me quite well. And, you know, when I started my career in uh, astrophysics, uh, my mentor said, uh, you know, how, how many computer programs uh, do, I, do I use or do I, uh, am I familiar with? And I said, not much. I, I pretty much avoid the computer as much as I can. And, and he said, wow, that, that, I'm, I'm really surprised. How is that possible? And that was like um, uh, 35 years ago. And, uh, you know, uh, I didn't, uh, I was never fascinated by taking advantage of computers. I was thinking more in terms of my own 
curiosity and um, ideas. And it always struck me as uh, surprising that I come up with ideas that look rather trivial and straightforward to me, a matter of common sense. And for some reason, others do not think about them. So I can make a living out of that. But, you know, it's not obvious to me why they don't think about them, because they seem quite obvious to me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know you're too humble, probably, to say this about yourself. But for me, I think that's a hallmark of genius. You know, I think about when I read Leonardo da Vinci's biography and how he would observe things that were visible to pretty much everyone, but he paid attention in a way that others didn't. So when you see these things, maybe that is. uh, Yeah, but you see, the thing is, the thing is that it doesn't require too much effort for me. So I I find those ideas to be rather straightforward. So when I speak, for example, with young people, they tell me about something they're doing. And then I ask them a question and say, why didn't you check that? Did you look at that? And they say, wow, this is really interesting. You know, I've been, and then we write a paper together. And it strikes me as why wouldn't they think about it? You know, like this is not a lot of effort. It's just, a, it comes to me immediately kind of uh, with, so I don't, uh, you know, I don't regard these insights as particularly uh, rare or unusual because they come so naturally that, they bubble up in my head. And so um, I regard them as rather trivial, you know, and, and in retrospect, very often people say, yeah, of course, you know, that's, that's obvious, but for some reason, nobody else came up with those to start with. You know? <laughs> yeah. You know, my dad, uh, he's passed now, but he used to say nothing is obvious to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably so, true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've written a book. I know you've written many books, Uh, But your latest book to be published is this book, Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. Fascinating book. Uh, I love the mixture of memoir and science mystery (laughs) that it represents. But tell me, please, why did you write this book? Who did you write it for and what did you want it to do? Yeah, I wrote it for young people. Basically, I told the publisher, if I managed to convince a young kid somewhere in the world to become a scientist... I would be satisfied. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, the book is now doing so well. You know, it's basically I have interviews from 8 a.m. until 10 p.m. almost every day now, back to back, well, after declining 20% or so of the request. And there is huge, huge interest in it. And it's on the, you know, uh, a day ago, it uh, was uh, selected as a bestseller by the New York Times uh, bestseller list. Uh, number Congratulations. Seven. Thank you. Between sandwich between uh, Michelle and Barack Obama. Uh, and I didn't <laughs> expect that. I wasn't. And um, the, the, my publicist in the UK said, um, congratulations, Avi. Uh, you're doing a great job in publicizing the book, you know, in putting so much effort into publicity. And I said, uh, I don't, you know, maybe I'm naive, but uh, I don't uh, interpret the success of the book as uh, the fact that I'm doing publicity to the book. This is not really the issue. I'm trying to convey a message here that appeals to people. And that's why it's successful. It has nothing to do with how much effort I put. And by the way, I don't care how many likes I have on Twitter. So I would say the same things, if, even if most people would not like them. So it's not as if I tune my message so that it would appeal to a lot of people. And the success of the book is, a, of course, a pleasant uh, 
surprise, but uh, it's not as if I, I planned for it. And, and that's why I said what I said. Uh, I just say what I think and it to be true. And I'm very glad uh, to recognize that, that the public uh, agrees with me. And, and uh, I should say that this is not true in the academic community. And I come from the academic community. You know, I have a lot of leadership positions and, and I get uh, uh, rather um, cold response from many of uh, my colleagues and uh, they just have a taboo on discussing the search for technological signatures and um, they're not happy to discuss it. And uh, I find that to be a problem with the scientific culture right now, with academic culture, and I, I express my views on that. So I don't know how many of uh, the book copies are being sold in academia, but frankly, I don't really care. Um, my message is intended to make uh, things better in the future. And I, I target the younger people of today with the hope that they will change the current situation. Yeah. Well, this is something I definitely want to ask you about. In your book, you write, the scientific community's prejudice or closed-mindedness however you want to describe it, is particularly pervasive and powerful when it comes to the search for alien life, especially intelligent life. Many researchers refuse to even consider the possibility that a bizarre object or phenomenon might be evidence of an advanced civilization. That really, that really surprises me. I, I yeah. feel like it shouldn't, but isn't it a scientist's job to be open-minded? Yes, right? Exactly. Once again, this is a perfect illustration of what we started from where something appears quite straightforward to me. You know, I speak out of common sense. I grew up on a farm. You know, I, I completely connect to people that are not the specialists, you know, and it's obvious this is a fundamental question that science can address that bears a great significance to the public. You know, it will change our perception about our place in the universe, you know, our aspirations. Uh, we may not be the smartest kid on the block, so we can learn from alien civilizations. It's just fascinating. It makes science exciting if we were to explore this question, okay? So yeah. I would expect everyone around me to say, great, let's, let's find out, okay? So we are not sure if this object was a technological relic, but we want to collect as much evidence as possible on the next one that shows up. Instead, yeah. what I hear is, how dare you even mention this possibility? It's degrading science. Now, this is something the public cares about, the public funds science, and the scientists decline to discuss it using the tools they have, uh, like telescopes, instruments, to answer this question. I cannot understand the current state of affairs. And, uh, you know, and, and by the way, it's not a speculative idea that we might not be alone because we now know that, uh, half of the sun-like stars, plus or minus 30%, have an Earth-sized planet roughly at the Earth-Sun separation from them. So that means there are billions of Earth-Sun systems in the Milky Way galaxy. And what could be more conservative and common sense, sensical thing to say, than to say uh, that if you replicate the physical conditions in many systems, you end up with similar outcomes. Why would we assume that we are special and unique? Why would my colleagues require that I bring them an alien so that the alien would shake their hand and only then they would be uh, willing to consider the possibility that they're not unique and special? The only way I can understand that is if uh, 
they're so attached to their ego that, that just mentioning that possibility that there might be someone uh, smarter on the block offends them. And, you know, my daughters, when they were young, they thought very highly of themselves until they went to the kindergarten and met other kids. And obviously they would have preferred to stay at home because then they would have the illusion that they are, you know, the smartest. Uh, but I think science is all about gaining knowledge about our environment and not being afraid of that knowledge. And uh, I would expect scientists to be open to that. And some of them would say, you know, there is science fiction literature and uh, there, there, there is discussion about unidentified flying objects that we don't trust. Fine. I mean, there used to be in the dark ages, the middle ages, uh, there used to be people saying that um, the human body has some magical properties. There is a soul. We should not operate the human body. We should not dissect it. And imagine if scientists would would then respond by saying, oh, there is a lot of nonsense being said about the human body, therefore we should never examine it. Where would modern medicine be? The fact that some people make, make nonsensical remarks about a subject doesn't should not prevent scientists from addressing it using the scientific method and tools. And yeah. what could be more appropriate than addressing a question that the public cares about using the instruments we have. That should be mainstream. Yeah. It's not a speculation. It's the most uh, conservative things thing to assume that we are not alone because we see the conditions on earth replicated in so many other places. Yeah. And we can just search and be open-minded to that possibility. And yet you find the mainstream of the scientific community bullying and ridiculing the suggestion that I made about a specific object that looked nothing like we have seen before. Yeah. And I ask you, how is that possible? So I asked my wife, I said, look, this is an amazing opportunity for me to make my case and try to change this culture. The situation is not healthy and I cannot let it go like that. And so I wrote this book with the hope that it will change the culture. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm grateful for that because honestly, until this moment, I hadn't recognized about how there's more at stake here than just this, you know, one object, but there's this scientific paradigm, you know? Right. And, and so I'm grateful that you're, yeah. that you're and there. Just about <laughs> that. Um, just about that. I wanted to add that there is a chapter in my book uh, called Oumuamua's Wager which is reminiscent of uh, Pascal's wager. So Pascal wondered about God and he was a mathematician. So he tried to address this logically. And he said, you know, there are two possibilities, either God exists or, or doesn't exist. Uh, if God exists, the implications would be tremendous. And therefore I, I must take this seriously. So I, you know, I'm, proposing in my book that, you know, if Oumuamua is a technological relic, the implications are enormous. It's probably the most important scientific discovery that we ever made. So therefore we have to take it seriously. It's not as if, you know, this is a nuance that we can entertain or not entertain about reality. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I also just want to mention here a question that you ask in your book that I thought was really uh, insightful question was whether or not another civilization, assuming it exists, 
that had been using science for a billion years. <laughs> Would that civilization consider us intelligent? It's like such a great question. Yeah. And I think probably not if you open, you know, if you read the news every day. Um, you know, one reason <laughs> I search for intelligence in the sky is that I don't often find it here on Earth. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are various reasons that I think we could be more intelligent. Uh, one of them is, you know, we fight each other, we use most resources. Uh, in uh, disputes and, uh, you know, uh, instead of cooperating and collaborating, work, working together towards a better future. And that's not a sign of intelligence. Also, there are all kinds of social phenomena. We most, you know, most people are engaged in trying to demonstrate that they are superior relative to other people. And, you know, the, the one incarnation of that is racism and uh, there are many others. And, and, and that makes little sense if you look at the, about, at the big picture. You know, the universe is so big and we live for such a short time. How, yeah. can, we, how can we be arrogant? Um, and how can we feel satisfaction from arguing that we are superior relative to another person? We share so much uh, in our genetic heritage and th those differences are minuscule compared to, to what we find in the universe, you know? And so rather than do that and waste our life <laughs> on uh, illusions that uh, do not really measure up to, to the scale of the universe, we should uh, focus on, you know, who is in our neighborhood and what can we learn from that? So, you know, we can learn about new technologies. We can uh, get answers to questions for which we, we don't know the answer. Or we can, we could notice that, you know, they kill themselves they um, they are dead by now. Many cultures on on other planets, and by understanding what happened if they changed their climate or went into a war, we can avoid a similar fate by behaving better. And so that's like getting a lesson from history. Yeah, absolutely. And I realize you know we haven't set the stage, so to speak, for people listening who might not have been aware of all. Oumuamua. I want to say this right. Oumuamua. Oumuamua. Yeah. So Oumuamua. In October of 2017, we, as we being humans, <laughs> the science community, right, detected an object traveling through our solar system. Now, it was, we understand it was an interstellar object, right? right. Will you tell me, first of all, what does interstellar mean? And then will you tell me about Oumuamua? Yeah. So all the objects we have seen before in the solar system are bound to the sun, like the planets. They keep moving around the sun and they never escape. Uh, and there are other objects all the way out to the Oort cloud where you find objects that are 100,000 times farther than the earth is from the sun. They are loosely bound, but they're still bound to the sun. Oumuamua was the first object we spotted that was definitely not bound to the sun. The very first and, one in all of in all of human recorded history. That was the yes, first one. The first one that we noticed, uh, and we can tell that because it was moving too fast. You know, when you send out a rocket, uh, if you give it a high enough speed, it escapes the gravity of the Earth. And this object came with a high enough speed to be completely unbound to the sun and escape uh, the pull of the gravitational pull of the sun. So we can tell that easily just from the trajectory of this object. Uh, so it was the very first, and the reason we haven't seen anything like it before is because we didn't have a survey telescope that was looking over the sky with enough sensitivity. 
and by sensitivity, I mean we, we detect an object like that from its uh, reflection of sunlight. So the object needs to be big enough so that it reflects enough sunlight so that our telescope will notice it. And uh, the bigger the object is, the more rare it is. So, you know, it just happened that we had the PANSTARS telescope sensitive to objects of a size of order 100 meters or so, or a few hundred feet uh, for the first time surveying the sky. And there happened to be one such object entering our view after a few years of survey. Now, a decade earlier, I wrote the first paper to got, together with uh, two collaborators, uh, Amaya Moore-Martin and Ed Turner, the first paper forecasting how many rocks we expect of that size and whether PANSTARS would see any of them from interstellar space. And we forecasted that it will see nothing uh, based on what we know about the solar system. So the solar system loses rocks uh, to the outside world, especially from the periphery where the, the rocks are loosely bound and passing stars can tear, tear them apart. Uh, and we estimated how many rocks will be lost and it was off by many orders of magnitude relative to what's needed to explain the detection of Oumuamua. So the mere detection of an interstellar object by PANSTARS was surprising. Um, and, you know, PANSTARS was primarily oriented to detecting uh, objects that might come close to Earth because we know that the dinosaurs were killed by a rock uh, as big as uh, the island of Manhattan. And uh, when they saw this rock coming in, it must have been a beautiful sight uh, 66 million years ago. This rock got bigger and bigger on the sky, but the fun stopped when it hit the ground. And three quarters of all life forms on Earth were, went extinct at, at that point. So we don't want that fate. And uh, even though we don't have the body of a dinosaur, but uh, we have a brain and and that is more helpful for survival. So we have astronomers that can use telescopes like PANSTARS to monitor the sky and warn us. Uh, and then we might uh, deflect the rock uh, from hitting the earth if it's dangerous enough. Mm. So anyway, so that's the motivation for PANSTARS. But in the process of serving the sky, it found this one, which came from interstellar space. You know, And the uh, astronomers assumed, oh, it must be a comet, you know, just like the rocks we have seen before in the solar system. Um, and uh, when we collected data on it, it didn't look like it has a cometary tail. There was no gas around it at all. So it was definitely not a comet. And the Spitzer Space Telescope uh, searched very carefully around the object, couldn't see any traces of carbon-based molecules, nothing. So it was definitely not a comet. Uh, and then as it was tumbling every eight hours, its brightness changed. The amount of reflected sunlight changed by a factor of 10, which is very extreme. It means that the area of the object as it was spinning uh, changed, projected on the sky was changing by a factor of 10 uh, because the amount of sunlight you see is proportional to the area. Uh, and uh, that's very extreme. It means that projected on the sky, the object was at least 10 times longer than it was wide. Uh, and in fact, and, and that been... alone, sorry, sorry to jump in, but that alone, that dimension is very unusual relative yes. to what we normally see with an asteroid. Exactly. And that, get, that led to the artist's uh, impression of a cigar-shaped uh, object, but it, it was not a cigar. The best model for the variation in the light 
was that of a pancake-shaped uh, object, flat. Mm. And uh, I mean, when even if you take a piece of paper projected on the sky, you know, it could look like uh, a cigar uh, when you look at it from a distance, but but intrinsically, it, it, it should have been flat. Yeah. And so then, one. Uh, sorry, yeah. sorry to jump in again, but a question here. So. When we say we saw it with the PanStars telescope, yeah, the, are we actually seeing visually, or is this no. some kind of a radio signal? What are, what are we seeing? No. So what we are seeing is just reflected the sunlight. So we use the sun as a, a flashlight that illuminates the object, and uh, we can see the reflected light from its surface. That's so. All. Then when when you say we can see it, do you mean like do we see data? We see numbers, or uh, we, see, we don't see we a see. picture. A photograph. Well, we no, we see a point of, of a, a point source of light. Okay. We cannot resolve it because it's too small. It's only a few hundred feet, uh, roughly the size of a football field, at a fraction of the distance to the sun. So, it's uh, really impossible to resolve it with existing telescopes. But if we had a camera close to it, we could have taken a close-up photo. And that would, uh, by the way, a picture is worth a thousand words. It would have saved me. <laughs> thousands of words in yeah. the context of this book if if i had a picture of the object and obviously i want to see a picture of it because sure. then we can tell if it's a rock or something else yeah uh, but we couldn't resolve it so all we saw is a point of light which is shown actually as the first figure the first image in my in my book and we could monitor how much light is coming to us over time and as it was tumbling mm -hmm. the amount of light changed and um, by the way, it's traveling at about 56,000 miles an hour. Yeah, uh, that's uh, primarily dictated by gravity and the initial speed of the object far from the sun. Uh, so by itself, it's not particularly surprising, except what was surprising is the object came from the direction to which, towards which the sun is moving in the so-called local standard of rest. So the local standard of rest is the frame of reference that you get when you average over the random motions of stars in the vicinity of the sun. It's sort of, every star has some motion, but there is sort of the average frame of reference uh, relative to which each star is moving. And this object was at rest in that frame, surprisingly, because only one in 500 stars is at rest in that frame. So if it came from another star, why would it be at rest? I mean, all this, only one in 500 would actually have a, a speed similar to that of Oumuamua in that frame. It was just like a buoy sitting at rest on the surface of the ocean. And then the solar system bumped into it like a giant ship. And uh, that by itself is another weird, quite unlikely if it were a natural object. Yeah. And then um, it exhibited a, a, an extra push relative uh, to, away from the sun, uh, in addition to the force of gravity that acted on it. Uh, but there were no gases around it to give it the rocket effect to, uh, to explain that. And the only possible explanation that I could think of was reflection of sunlight. Just, so I was imagining uh, a sail, basically a very thin object, such that the reflection of light from the sun would give it a push. And um, 
this is called the light sail. It's just like uh, the sail on a boat, except it's not being pushed by wind reflected off it, but rather by light. And we're currently developing this technology for space exploration. Uh, it offers the advantage of not uh, needing uh, for the uh, spacecraft to carry the fuel with it. Uh, so you just ride on a beam of light, so to speak. And in principle, you can get to high speeds. But um, it could also be uh, any object that is thin enough uh, would feel that force. So it doesn't need to be designed to act as a, a light cell. So for example, in September 2020, just a few months ago, there was another object that showed a push because of reflection of sunlight without a cometary tail. And that one was traced to a rocket booster that was launched into space uh, in 1966. And it was hollow and thin, and that's why it exhibited this behavior. And we know that it's artificial because we produced it. Uh, so we can tell the difference between a rock and an artificial object that is thin based on the way it moves. And um, the question is, who produced Oumuamua? Yeah, so, such a great mystery. And I was relating this to my daughter. She's 17. She is interested in science right now. With a, deeply fascinated by marine life, but uh -huh. I was sharing with her. Uh, I said, "Look, this thing, its dimensions were, you know, disproportionate to what we've seen before. Its brightness was, uh, un, it was inconsistent with what we thought would have been a naturally occurring uh, object. It wasn't showing signs of gas. It moved away from the sun's gravity as though it had some form of propulsion that was not." you know, naturally occurring, like all these things. And, and I said, you know, and Avi has this, this theory that it was, uh, it's artificial that someone made it and it wasn't us, but it wasn't a spacecraft per se. It wasn't carrying people we don't think or, or life, but nevertheless, uh, perhaps a discarded relic of a technological culture or something. Uh, so do I have that correct? Is there yes. anything that you would clarify or add to that? No, ex you had it exactly correct. And I'm glad that you explained it to your daughter because I really enjoy um, speaking and working with young people because they don't carry a baggage of prejudice. You know, they, not, they really are curious about the world. And uh, I wish that the adults I know would have been uh, loyal to their childhood curiosity. But instead, what I see very often are uh, tenured professors that are attached to their ego, worry about their image, and not take any risk and are not wondering about the world. They wonder mostly about themselves. You know, and that's, you know, the world centers on them, so to speak. Um, so, um, yeah, that's exactly right. And um, um, it's really strange that, that this was the first object that we have seen. After that, we have seen another interstellar object called Borisov. It was discovered by Gennady Borisov. Uh, an amateur Russian uh, astronomer, and, um, and it was just like a regular comet. So it looked completely natural. So people came to me and said, doesn't that convince you that uh, Oumuamua was, uh, had a natural origin? Uh, to which I replied, you know, if you find a plastic bottle on the beach, uh, and after that you see a lot of rocks, that doesn't make the plastic bottle a rock. Uh, another example, you know, when I met my wife, uh, she looked special to me. I met a lot of people afterwards, and she still is special to me. Yeah. So it has nothing to do with each other. And 
In fact, uh, when we see comets coming from interstellar space, it only makes Oumuamua even stranger. Yeah, no doubt. So we talked a little bit about perhaps, we talked a little bit about why uh, not everyone, and I, I just want to recognize that we can see the same things and come to very different conclusions in many areas of life, right? right, right. But um, yeah. is there anything more in, in, in your thinking about why, why there isn't a more widespread uh, adoption of this theory or at least the possibility that this was of extraterrestrial origin? Well, I think it takes uh, scientists out of their comfort zone to discuss something brand new. Uh -huh. uh, but that's the thrill of doing science. Uh, and I just think the scientific community is exactly in the opposite position to where it should be because this idea is not speculative that we might not be alone. Uh, we see Earth-Sun systems uh, quite frequently and we expect uh, that if you arrange for similar circumstances, you get similar outcomes. You know, that would be the most conservative, uh, commonsensical thing to assume. And uh, the only reason we might assume otherwise is if we, if we are attached to ourselves too much and uh, yeah. think that, you know, just like uh, Aristotle, the ancient Greek philosopher, argued that we are at the center of the universe. Uh, and people believed him for a thousand years because it flatters our ego to be central to the universe. But it's just wrong, you know, as Galileo was arguing. And, uh, you know, things can be beautiful, but wrong. And yeah. we have to recognize that. And the, the way to figure it out, you know, is listening to nature. It's a dialogue. We, we have to look at the evidence. And if it doesn't line up with what we expect, we might need to revise our notions. And, you know, it's the, it's the duty of scientists to adjust their notion based on evidence rather than insist that uh, something should not be discussed and ridicule it when the public really cares about it. And, you know, I was in the military at a young age. Uh, it's obligatory in Israel where I grew up. And uh, when I was in the paratroopers, uh, I remember that uh, the, the statement that uh, sometimes a soldier has to put his body on the barbed wire so that others can cross over. And, you know, I'm willing to suffer through the pain of dealing with the kind of comments that are made about this and so that the younger people uh, would be able to discuss it in the future. And, you know, the point is, the biggest impact that negative comments have is on young people, because when they enter science and they see such ridicule, they make a calculation of not to discuss it at all, because it would damage their chances of getting a job somewhere or getting honors awards. And uh, so that uh, deflects talent from entering into this research. And at the same time, if you don't fund uh, research in this area, and you know, then it's just like stepping on the grass and, and saying, look, it doesn't grow. And um, I find that to be quite unfortunate that, that there is not uh, more uh, interest. This should be mainstream in astronomy right now, but instead yeah. it's, it's at the periphery. And um, given that the public is so interested in it, uh, we must change that. Yeah. I'm reminded of that saying Max Planck about science progressing one funeral at a time. <laughs> science, science advances one funeral at a time. Maybe we're seeing that here. Yeah, very true. And, uh, you know, it, um, sometimes uh, we have to recognize that uh, it's, 
if we are not open-minded, if we, are, if we do not uh, look out and uh, uh, if we are not willing to discover the unexpected, we would never discover it. Uh, it's as if we put blinders. Uh, yeah. It's the same experience as the philosophers had the, when they refused to look through Galileo's telescope. Uh, you can keep your opinions, but um, reality doesn't really care if you ignore it. And, you know, the earth continue to move around the sun and the aliens will continue to exist irrespective of whether we are willing to admit that they might exist. Yeah. You know, I remember a few years ago, I finally got around to reading Carl Sagan's Cosmos. And I recall the calculation toward the end of the book about the, I think it was about the probability that there is in fact, intelligent life somewhere in the universe. And you mention uh, a number in your book when you say adding all the other galaxies in the observable volume of the universe increases the number of habitable planets to a Zeta or a 10 to the 21st power, a figure greater than the number of grains of sand on all the beaches on earth. Right. Now I know that doesn't speak exactly to the probability of intelligent life somewhere in the universe, but that's a pretty big number to have that many habitable planets. That's, that's amazing. Right. That it is amazing. And uh, also illustrates that, a sense of modesty that we shouldn't be too proud when we accomplish something on this tiny earth, you know, and uh, I just cannot understand how kings and emperors were arrogant and, you know, they uh, were very proud of themselves accomplishing something on earth, but, you know, a sense of modesty would help humanity. Uh, also the knowledge we have about the universe is rather limited. You know, we, it's surrounded by an ocean of ignorance. So let's just admit that we don't know a lot and, and explore and get feedback from experiments and clues that we collect through our telescopes rather than say we know the answer in advance. It's never aliens. It's always rocks. Because then we behave just like a caveman that is used to playing with rocks all of his life and then pre when presented with a cell phone would argue that the cell phone is a polished rock. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I want to turn our conversation to a few other questions that you have asked and, and lines of inquiry you've pursued uh, that I thought were really fun, like really remarkable. And in each case here, I think you have a, at least one collaborator. So I want to acknowledge that as well. And you can mention them if you want. But you mentioned that there was a time when you realized that human civilization produced a great deal of noise at the meter wave radio spectrum and thought it was reasonable that another civilization might produce, produce noise in the same radio band. So you proposed speaking or seeking evidence of that. Will you, right. will you talk about that idea and, and what you did as a result? Yeah, that was actually my first paper uh, on uh, the search for intelligent life. And actually, I remember uh, after I wrote it that uh, one of the practitioners in, in the search for intelligent life, SETI, uh, Jill Tarter, gave uh, a, a colloquium at uh, Harvard and, and said that, uh, even Avi wrote a paper on this subject. Uh, just to illustrate to you that I was working uh, in cosmology, the study of the universe, and nobody expected me to write a paper on that. And um, the reason I wrote it is because, um, you know, I, I pioneered the, the study of the first stars in the universe. Let there be light, you know, the, the biblical uh, phrase that now can be studied scientifically of how the first light in the universe came to exist. And, uh, so I worked on that, and the one effect, effect that the first stars had was to produce ultraviolet radiation that broke the hydrogen atoms 
into their constituent uh, electrons and protons. And, and one way to find those scars that were left by the first galaxies on their environment when they broke the hydrogen was to image the hydrogen in the universe at early times. There should have been bubbles around the first sources of light and um, bubbles of broken hydrogen. Uh, and how can you image hydrogen? Well, it emits a very faint radio uh, uh, signal at uh, a wavelength of 21 centimeter, which is very long wavelength. And, and then because of the expansion of the universe, it's, the wavelength is even stretched farther to meter wavelengths, roughly the, the height of a person. And uh, as a result of these studies, uh, we motivated the new observatories that would search for long wavelength radiation and, or low frequency radiation. And it turns out that the biggest interference for those comes from radio and TV broadcasting uh, on Earth because it's roughly at the same frequencies, same wavelengths. And, and so one, at one point, uh, I joked uh, with a colleague of mine, Matthias Daldriaga, I said, look, if... Uh, if radio and TV transmission poses a problem uh, for building observatories on Earth, we could potentially use the same observatories to eavesdrop on, on such uh, emissions from another civilization on some, some planet. And, and uh, why don't we write a paper about that? So, so we wrote a paper about that. And we realized that, in fact, the emission, the radio emission from Earth can be detected all the way out to tens of light years away with the existing radio telescopes that uh, we're building. And, um, and so uh, we've been transmitting for a century. And what that means is that if there is another uh, sort of twin civilization out there that has similar capabilities to ours, uh, they could see us all the way out to tens of light years. And they probably know about us because we already transmitted those signals and uh, by the way, that's not a smart thing for us to do because uh, when you enter a room full of strangers, you better stay quiet and listen first and not speak out very loudly because you never know what the risks are. And, you know, we might hear back from those guys. Um, but anyway, we did that. We did it already. Uh, again, a sign of not being too intelligent. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but um, that led me, that was the first paper I wrote on the search. And and then a few years passed by, and I, I was in uh, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, for to for a conference uh, to celebrate a new to inaugurate a new campus that NYU uh, built there. And uh, the tour guide was bragging that the city lights can be seen all the way to the moon, because there are all these oil fields and they have a lot of electric power. They, you know, it, the, it's very bright around. So. And uh, I just thought to myself, okay, well, uh, you know, if, if there are city lights on, on uh, an object far away, how far can we see them, uh, the artificial lights? Um, you can tell the difference. Uh, for example, if a, an object like Pluto or something else out there uh, had a city like Tokyo, we could detect it with the Hubble Space Telescope, actually. Uh, and we could tell that it's artificial light and not reflected sunlight. Uh, by the way, it varies as the object changes its distance, because if it's artificial light, the brightness changes inversely with distance squared. But if it's uh, reflected sunlight, it changes roughly as one over distance to the fourth power. And so we wrote this paper with a colleague of mine, Ed Turner, and um, 
that was my second paper. And uh, after that, I, I met uh, the observer that discovered most of the objects in the Kuiper belt, and not far from Pluto, and uh, asked him, did you ever check whether any of these objects changes its brightness as it changes its distance from us in the way that you expect from reflected sunlight? And he said, why should I check? It's obvious, it must be that way. So again, mm -hmm. illustrating to you that when people are not considering some possibilities, they will never find them. Yeah. You know, it's another example is the Mayan culture. You know, when I visited Chichen Itza in, uh, in uh, Mexico and, uh, and there I, I realized that they elevated astronomers to the highest level in society. Uh, they were called astronomer priests. And the reason was that the politicians thought that astronomy is extremely useful politically because if you know the positions of planets on the sky, that helps you to forecast whether a war would be successful. So they had these astronomers to tell them uh, to forecast where the planets would be at a particular time of the year so that they would decide whether to go to war. Okay, And uh, of course, nowadays it would look um, and like not a very good recipe for success. Um, but back then they believed in that. And um, you can collect a lot, they collected a huge amount of astronomical data um, and, and astronomers were held at high regard, but it was not used for the right purpose to derive, uh, for example, Newton's law of gravity or Kepler laws. Um, so the point is if, if, even if you get a lot of data and you're just not thinking right, you know, if you don't interpret the anomalies correctly, you you may fool yourself uh, for a thousand years, you know, and yeah. uh, you might think that the sun moves around the earth for a thousand years, and you might think that uh, wars are dictated by the position of planets, and, and uh, you know, the data that you collect will not change your view because you're not entertaining other options. And so if my colleagues keep uh, bullying and, and discrediting any claim that there might be evidence for uh, something unusual, you know, uh, we will never find something unusual. Yeah. No, that, <clears throat> that makes a lot of sense. Let me transition the conversation just a little bit to, to something else that you talk about in your book, you say, uh, and you've, you've, you said earlier that you're doing so many interviews now. And, and obviously, you know, this is something that the public is very interested in, as you've said, mm -hmm. uh, but you write, I had undergone, you said, while I had undergone extensive professional training in various fields throughout my life, no one, especially me, had thought to include media training. In hindsight, maybe someone should have. What have you learned or what did you wish you knew sooner about media training? Well, I, I sort of learned it by now because um, I write to Scientific American every week or so, a uh, week or two. Uh, I write a column and commentary and you know, there are many of them by now, maybe a hundred, more than a hundred. Uh, and then uh, it, it allowed me to perfect the way I communicate so that it's more transparent. And I, this started when I started teaching at Harvard. Before that, I was not a good communicator. And trying to teach a class um, guides you uh, at organizing the material properly in a pedagogical way so that they, the students can follow. And Later, I wrote books, and that also, you know, it's a lot of work to make it clear. Uh, and uh, 
there are many people that just don't know how to organize material in a way that would appeal to the reader. And I learned it through the experience of writing books and then writing commentaries. And these were the seeds for my latest book. And uh, uh, I mean, it prepared me. And uh, in a way, I'm, I'm now at a point where uh, I connect to the public. I am able to explain the situation clearly as, as to what is going on in the scientific community. And I'm honest about it. Uh, I'm not trying to manipulate anyone and I'm giving a honest uh, reflection on, on, on what's going on. And, and also, you know, this subject is, it really fell to my lap. I mean, the reason I get this attention is because my colleagues are not treating it right. And once again, as we discussed at the beginning, I just don't understand it. I'm trying to convey common sense and they don't follow common sense. And uh, I wish they would, because then, it, you know, it would make me sort of a typical scientist, not unusual, and I wouldn't yeah. have to go through what, everything I'm going. But for some reason, they don't share this view. And it's really strange, because at the same time, you see uh, theoretical particle physics, theoretical physicists talking about the multiverse, extra dimensions, string theory, concepts that have no connection to experimental verification. And they have been doing that for decades. And they keep doing that, giving each other awards, recognition, claiming that they carry the torch of physics forward, while it's not really the torch of physics, it's the torch of either mathematics or self-promotion. And uh, we don't know if reality resembles any of these ideas. Um, they just do intellectual gymnastics and show that they are smart. But this, you know, physics is not about that. It's about a dialogue with, with nature. It's not a monologue. We're supposed to listen to nature and revise our notions uh, based on anomalies, things that do not match what we expect. And, you know, you can be very happy claiming that you're wealthier than Elon Musk. You know, that's a great thought. It's beautiful thought and you can be happy. Just like being high on drugs, you know, can be happy. Uh, but then when you go to the bank and want to use that money, you will very quickly figure out that you don't have it. And going to the bank is equivalent to an experiment where you put some skin in the game, you make a prediction, I have a certain amount of money, you go to the bank, you check it out, and it's not there. Okay, so we have to revise our notion. And if you don't allow yourself to go to the bank, if you don't have experimental verification, you can be happy, you can celebrate, you can demonstrate your, how smart you are, but it has no bearing on reality. You know? And yeah. it's no different than the beautiful idea that we are at the center of the universe that Aristotle had with the spheres around us. You know, that was a very sophisticated and very clever model of the universe. It's just wrong. And right. the real universe may be simple, not so sophisticated, but it's different. And our duty as physicists is to figure it out, not to demonstrate that we are smart. Yeah. So in just a moment, I want to transition our conversation to something I call the enlightening lightning round. But before we do, is there anything that we haven't talked about, either related to the book or anything else? Well, um, I would like to encourage the young generation to, to do change the current culture. And, you know, it's really uh, my messages about Oumuamua potentially being um, a, a, an artifact, a technological artifact, and 
and the ability for us to explore more objects of the same type and the desired change in the current academic culture, you know, uh, it could all be uh, accomplished if um, the young people that listen to this will um, be engaged in changing reality rather than being worried about uh, senior people basically blocking their path uh, for jobs and so forth if they were to try that. I think there are many more people that sympathize with what I say based on the success of the book, based on the responses I get by email. And uh, I think we, we have a good chance of making the future better than the past. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that someone with your experience and your intelligence and, and just your perspective, <laughs> you know, holds yeah. that view. I mean, I'm in house arrest, uh, very similarly to the house arrest that uh, Galileo was in, but it's because of the pandemic, not because someone is doing something bad to me right now. That's good. Okay. Well, let's move to the enlightening lightning round. So what this is, is it's a series of brief questions on a variety of topics. You're welcome to answer as long as you'd like. But for my part, my aim is to ask the question and stand aside. Go ahead. Okay. Question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a... Um. An adventure. Okay. Question number two. Here I'm borrowing Peter Thiel's question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? That uh, we are not unique and special. We are not the smartest kid on the block. All right. Question number three. Realize this one might be a stretch, but I invite you to go with it. Uh, If you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt, with a slogan on it, or a phrase, or a saying, or a quote, or a quip, what would the shirt say? We are not this, the sharpest cookie in the... Okay. Question number four. What book, other than one of your own, have you gifted or recommended most often? Um, I, I, I'm not asked to recommend a book, but, um, you know, I, I'm very impressed recently. I'm very impressed with Epicorus, you know, the, the way he's described in uh, by the poet uh, Lucretius. Uh, he had a lot of things that he said, according to Lucretius, that uh, are true, like the existence of atoms and, uh, and, and the nature of death. And, um, you know, he said, for example, that he's not afraid of death because when death is around, he will not be around. And when he's around, death is not around. So he will never meet death and therefore has nothing to worry about death you know like uh he was a very wise person he also said that you know the company of people uh, uh of friends and uh, trying to figure out the world you know thinking philosophically about the world are the best rewards that you can expect from life and i pretty much agree with that um so you know the fact that the person thousands of years ago thought this true things and are still very relevant is remarkable to me. Yeah. Yeah. That is remarkable. And somebody wrote them down and and other people preserved them. (laughs) Yeah. So great. Okay. Question number five. So you have traveled a lot in your life. What is one travel hack, meaning something you take with you or you do when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? Nowadays it's uh, jogging uh, with, 
in, in nature, you know. So since the pandemic started, the, I developed a new routine every morning. At jog out to the local woods and there is no person around. Actually, today I, I, I went out even earlier than 5 a.m. because nowadays I wake up at 3 a.m. Otherwise, I cannot accommodate all the requests for interviews. And um, it's just fun. And I do it irrespective of the weather, even if it uh, snows or rains or I don't care. It's really fun to be embedded uh, with nature in the company of rabbits, ducks, birds and snow, you know. Uh, in the Boston area right now. Um, and uh, I really enjoy that uh, because I was born on a farm and I used to collect eggs every afternoon. I, I really connect to nature much more than to people. Uh, I don't have any uh, footprint on social media. And so that's what I preserve when I go places. Uh, my, uh, you know, I, I would go out and jog anywhere. Wow. So that's perfect. That's maybe the answer to the next question as well. Yeah. But of course, you're welcome to answer with whatever you want. Uh, what's one thing you started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Well, um, so I changed my diet. In addition to the exercise, um, you know, I, I, I'm on a low carb diet and about half of the calories I get per day. Now, with the interviews, I think it's more like 65% of the calories I get per day are from dark chocolate. You said not a box of chocolate, but that's actually what I eat the most. <laughs> wow. And uh, you might ask, how is that possible? Well, I, you know, I eat about um, maybe a bar and a half of, of dark chocolate a day. Uh, I don't eat a lot more. Uh, I mean, I do eat dinner and stuff, but it's something I really enjoy. And uh, I, I eat dark chocolate, so it doesn't have much sugar in it. And uh, I cherish that. Uh, you know, it's really great. And uh, since I've started this diet where I, I don't consume much carbs, you know, I lost about a third of my weight within a few years. And wow. uh, it's a lot. I mean, a third of your weight. And uh, and together with uh, jogging, you know, I, I can tell that uh, my ability to think and concentrate and uh, remember things is as good as or even better as when, ever in my life, you know, like better than when I was a teenager, you know, I, wow. I can, I'm basically at the peak of uh, my intellectual abilities ever. And uh, I think diet is extremely important exercise as well uh, in keeping you up to shape. Yeah. Sleep, sleep is important too. I know, you know, sleep that, is important, but... <laughs> but I can testify that over the past few weeks didn't get enough sleep. You know, I would go to bed because of the interviews at 10 30 PM and wake up at 3 AM and you might think, okay, well, that's too too little, uh, but uh, I, I do well uh, for yeah. some reason. You know, perhaps the diet and the exercise keep me on track. You know. Yeah. Well, and and the chocolate. I'm curious. I know some people are as uh, they're uh, what's the word like an aficionado. Uh, do you have a particular brand or? Oh yeah, kind I have of a number like? of. I have like ten different types, and I, you know, take. A, a little bit of each. It's not as if it's all one type. Mm -hmm. And um, I stick to those brands because I tested a lot. And they are mainly from uh, uh, South South America, you know, Latin America. Um, uh, they, they make uh, just superb chocolate in some of the countries, in Peru, yeah. for example, Ecuador. Yeah. That's amazing. Okay, question number seven. What's one thing you wish every American knew that science is important. 
and crucial for our future, that knowledge is to our benefit always. See, some people prefer to bury their head in the sun. And when I say some people, it's not just the general public, but also scientists, you know, the, the scientists that refuse to examine some, some anomalies. And what they don't understand is knowledge is always good. Uh, what you do with it might not be good. So let me give an example. Um, nuclear energy, you know, so we discovered nuclear forces, nuclear energy, and then, of course, you can make nuclear bombs out of that, and that affected politics. You know, this, the, the Cold War with the Russians was pretty much uh, triggered by the development of nuclear weapons. And uh, of course, that's a bad thing. But at the same time, you can use nuclear energy for our needs, the energy needs we have. And that could be a very nice solution to our energy needs in the future, because it's clean, relatively clean energy if you do it right, you know. And France has most of its power coming from nuclear energy. So it's possible to do. In the US, for some reason, didn't really reach uh, its potential. And the point is that uh, anything, just like nuclear energy, can be used for either positive or negative purposes or uses. And it depends on the set of values that we adapt when we use this knowledge. And yeah. But knowing something is always better than not knowing something because look at animals. They don't know anything. Look at the dinosaurs. The, 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 this rock came down and killed them because they didn't know much about astronomy. So knowing is always good. And how the best way for us to gain knowledge is through science because it uses, we, we can tell because look at all the technology that we are surrounded with. It all came from science quantum mechanics, solid state physics, you know, all of these things that appear to be just academic pursuits, you know, ended up serving us on a daily basis, com completely changing our lives and improving our life. And, and uh, we should be grateful to science for allowing us to advance. And, and the future is even brighter than that. So I think overall for society, science is the most precious commodity we have. And science advocates for collaboration, cooperation. So when you see phenomena like China not allowing scientists to enter and examine the COVID-19 virus when it just started, you know, and that is very distressing because, you know, science is about collaboration. It's about sharing information, working together to solve problems. And I wish that we didn't insert politics into science, that science would be regarded by all humans as something to share. Because I define science as an infinite sum game. You know, in economics, there is a zero sum game where if someone benefits, another person loses because the total is fixed. But science has no limits. If someone discovers new knowledge, new truths, it benefits everyone. So I call it an infinite sum game where by adding knowledge, everyone benefits. Uh, and uh, that's why it should be shared. And that's why we should work on science collaboratively. And if there is COVID-19, we should all share the information we have to help everyone on the globe because our fate is also common, you know, and yeah. we see that with the pandemic. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that perspective. And I also think it's, a, it's an enlightened view you know, I can see where, yes, everyone benefits from knowledge, but I also see, you know, what is perhaps selfish human nature 
of recognizing some people benefit more if they're the only ones who have it. <laughs> so the altruistic view is yes, everyone will ultimately benefit, but if yeah. I can benefit. Well, you me see, I you see, I regard science uh, not as an occupation of the elite or an occupation of uh, you know some nation or I, I see it as a way of life. You know that. You, you have clues, you have evidence, and you're trying to interpret them. And you, you know, if, if the evidence is, is, is becoming clear, then you figure it out. And I think any person can pursue science, you know, uh, even on a daily basis. You know, if you have a problem, uh, you're trying to solve it. If you think scientifically, you know, that's the path to resolving real problems. And yeah. uh, I just hate it when it's associated with academia, as if, you know, you have to be on a pedestal to deal with science. And yeah. Uh, which is the sentiment that you get from people saying, oh, we don't want to discuss technological signatures from other civilizations because the public connects to it too well. You know, it's, it appears in science fiction literature. Yeah. Why would that be an argument against it? You know, it should be an yeah. argument in favor of it. You, you know, this, and maybe you've seen this or maybe you think it's hogwash, who knows? Either way, it, it reminds me a little bit now of what, what I understand some of the religious authorities did in the mid ages of not teaching Latin or allowing the scriptures to be read and so forth. It's yeah. up in that tower. Exactly. No, I mean, um, a lot of the phenomena that I see right now uh, in, a, in the academic culture resemble religious uh, cults in the sense that a group of people decides to agree on something that something may not have any resemblance to reality, but as long as a large enough community agrees to it, that's fine. You know, there yeah. was a philosopher giving a, uh, a talk at the, an annual conference that we hold at the Black Hole Initiative. I'm the founding director of the Black Hole Initiative, which is the only center in the world focused on the study of black holes. And we bring together philosophers and scientists, mathematicians, astronomers, physicists, and, and, and philosophers. And, one of the philosophers in the first uh, annual conference gave a talk in which he said, if scientists agree, if physicists agree on something for a decade, it must be right by definition, because physics is what physicists do. So I raised my hand and said, you know, how can you say something like that? Uh, physicists can agree on something, but it may have nothing to do with reality. And yeah. the... the judgment should be based on evidence, on clues, not on people agreeing with each other. You know, uh, a lot of people agree that the sun moved around the earth, that the earth is at the center of the universe, that, you know, that makes no sense. But, but in today's culture of social media and people connecting and people agreeing on what to do as if, you know, that is acceptable and it, it's acceptable to the philosopher and he gives justification to that. And I, I just find it distressing because, you know, our duty as physicists is to pay attention to nature. It's a dialogue with nature. It's not a monologue. Yeah. I, I love that view. And, and with what you're saying too, this reminds me of that saying I've heard attributed to Abraham Lincoln about if you call a tail a leg, how many legs does a dog have? <laughs> right. And it's, <laughs> it's still four. <laughs> Calling That's a tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. Right. So, right. yeah, exactly. Um, the other thing I'm curious about, and I know I'm deviating, I'm breaking my own lightning round rules by <laughs> pulling on this, this question's response so long. But, but as I hear you share your view of science and in response to this question, what do you wish every American knew? I, I share that. Like I have a, 
although I'm not a scientist in the way you are, uh, I have a respect for science and what it has already done for us, what it can do for us. And I'm really curious to know what your view is of spirituality, where mm-hmm. and how does that fit into our lives? Okay. So first of all, I should say that, um, you know, our body, I believe our body is just a physical object. You know, when you die, it's basically just like uh, unplugging a computer system, you know, that all systems shut off and that's, that's all, you know, mm-hmm. now, I think that spirituality is extremely important for human life that just uh, focusing on the physical uh, knowledge we have uh, is too minimal. Uh, You know, there is much more. I think that the the humanities offer an extremely important perspective about reality. And, you know, science scientists tend to dismiss it, but it's extremely important, especially philosophy and the arts. And it's another way of looking at reality that is, complementary and can be inspiring to come up with a better idea. Uh, And, you know, Einstein, uh, for example, he was inspired by philosophers like Mach, Ernest Mach, uh, when coming up with his theory of gravity. And, uh, you know, scientists that are very technical and focusing on a niche uh, within science can ignore the bigger picture. But so they are likely to drill very deep uh, in that niche. But they might hit the rock bottom and end with that and not have a broad impact. And you have to have the bigger perspective. And, you know, as, as now a writer, uh, I can say that, testify that, that art and writing uh, and, and, you know, art more broadly, like paintings and so forth, uh, is really uh, providing intuition into things that you can't formulate clearly. And other people might, see your art as uh, differently than you do. And there is some subconscious uh, embedded into it that you are not aware of when you do it. You know, it comes out in a way that is sometimes strange to you as well. It's sort of like giving birth to a baby and the baby is independent and, and, and doing some things that you haven't expected and has the baby has some qualities. And you don't really know where the baby came from in the sense that you know, you contributed some DNA to that baby, but there was another, another parent that you're not aware of. And, and, and it's just a different way of reflecting on, on reality. And I should say that the creative process of doing science is not very different than the creative process of, of an artist. Uh, in both cases, uh, you know, it comes to you out of inspiration without a prescription it's not like there is a recipe for making a discovery scientific discovery just it just happens you know and uh just like in art you know you you need an inspiration and it comes out you know it's not something you can plan for and you can't design a discovery and you know like nasa for example when they ask you for a proposal they ask you to forecast what you will discover in year two year three uh and how can you forecast the discovery that's impossible, you know, and yeah. it's completely counterproductive to tell scientists to forecast what they will discover. Of course, NASA would argue, you know, we're giving you taxpayers' money, therefore we need to know that you will produce something useful. But the whole point about science is not to be useful in the short term. It's it's uh, to benefit from unexpected findings that cannot be prescribed ahead of time. These are the biggest breakthroughs. And if you look at the commercial world, you know, the companies, they have 
a component of com- of the company that is brainstorming all the time and yeah. you know in an unprescribed uh, fashion and uh, you know places like Google or SpaceX and and these are these are organizations that are in for the profit and they are investing in risk taking endeavors so if nasa gives a grant to an academic institution you know you would expect the academic world to be even more daring to be even more uh, risk taking because uh, you know it's blue sky re- supposed to be blue sky research that you can't prescribe and somehow this is not recognized you know on 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 ta- uh, uh, funding selection committees there uh, you have the mainstream scientists serving and providing primarily funding to uh, things that we can foresee you know like uh, that will just enhance what we already know and that to me is boring why not invest a fraction of the funding in risk taking and out of the box ideas and you know then we w- we might discover things uh, more frequently uh you know there is this example of the uh, discovery of exoplanets planets outside the solar system and uh in 1952 there was uh, an astronomer called Otto Struve that wrote a short paper suggesting that uh, we might search for Jupiter-sized planets around stars. Uh, if, there, if, if the planet is close enough to the star, it will tug it uh, back and forth, and we could detect that. Or if it comes in front of the star, there will be a diminution of the amount of light that we see, and therefore we can detect it in another way. And he just proposed that, and for four decades, astronomers refused to allocate time on telescopes to search for such systems because they said, we know that Jupiter in the solar system is far away from the sun and we understand why. Therefore, we, sh- we, don't, we shouldn't uh, waste telescope time on searching for things that don't exist. The only problem is that they do exist. And in 1995, you know, more than four decades afterwards, the first system was found and that opened the whole field of exoplanets and the Nobel Prize was awarded a few years ago for that, for that discovery. And you might say, oh, okay, so it was delayed by four decades. What's the big problem? Science did make progress. Uh, Well, first of all, it was delayed. So we could have made additional progress by now. But this is a baby that was barely born. And think about all the babies that were never born, that uh, were ridiculed and we never pursued and um, as a result, science did not make any progress on those fronts. So yeah. it's this conservative approach of not allowing babies to come out and not allocate risk-taking is troubling. Yeah, thank you. Okay, coming down the stretch on the enlightening lightning round. So last few questions. Um, question number eight. What's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work? Oh, um, well, first of all, listening to the person that you speak with uh, and attending to their concerns. You know, that's really important because, you know, it's uh, when you work with people, you have to understand where where they're coming from. And, you know, I started my life um, from a background that most uh, Harvard professors. You know, I, I grew up on a farm in a foreign country, and 
you know, it was always plan B for me to go back to the farm, you know, so I, I was never worried about getting tenure at Harvard. And that's one reason I accepted uh, an offer of an assistant, an associate professor without tenure at first. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, there are people that were even less privileged. And I recognize that because, you know, my circumstances perhaps were quite fortunate by chance and others may not have those. And I'm trying to help uh, people that come from unprivileged circumstances. You know, 80% of my graduate students were women over the past decade. And uh, I, I feel strongly about promoting women in science. And uh, I work with uh, underrepresented minorities and try to help them. And it all stems from the fact that uh, I do think that, you know, people talk a lot about uh, promoting uh, un, you know, students and, 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 and scholars from uh, under from from backgrounds that are not as as uh, uh, easy to come out of, and, uh, and and they talk about it, but don't they do not really do anything about it? And I feel strongly about helping individuals. You know that that is what we are supposed to do. And um, so um, that you accomplish by uh, attending to people' needs. You know the, to listening to what what would help them. And I've seen over the years, you know, there were students that came in and didn't have much skills and were not, uh, did not look very impressive, you know, and they ended up being my best, you know, ever. And there is one example of someone that came to me and said, uh, you know, I really want to work with you. I, I, I read your papers and he didn't, he, he didn't know anything about astrophysics. And I, I uh, started working with him Originally, he's from India and from a poor background and started working with him and they taught him a little bit of astronomy and, and he became my most prolific collaborator. We wrote about 45 papers over the past four years wow. and we have a textbook coming out of more than a thousand pages, Manasvi Lingam. And just think about it. This person would never have uh, worked in astrophysics if I didn't meet him and we and we had an amazing collaboration i benefited greatly i learned a lot from him he he's he has a brilliant intellect it's just that it was not it was not used for any you know productive purpose without me helping him to fulfill his potential and you know i, I really think it's important that's great okay question number 9 this one's about money so aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money? Or what's something you're always sure to do with it or you never do with it? You know, it's interesting. When I was very young, I was, uh, I, was I saw uh, my peers worrying about their bank account and trying to maximize their profits on various things. And I never cared about money, you know, and I always thought to myself, you know, I'll spend uh, as much as I need, not worry about making money mm -hmm. uh, and things will work out. And, you know, it worked out. And now I don't have a lot of money, uh, you know, and, you know, I don't have very large savings and, but it worked out, you know, and I never cared so much. And, you know, for example, uh, regarding my book, uh, the publicists, Publicist said, uh, you know, the, the book sales are doing great. And, and I said, look, I'm, I'm not, I don't really care about the book sales. I'm trying to convey a message here. And I really care about the public. 
listening to it, I don't care that it sells books. That's not my motivation. And my belief was always that things will work out. And, you know, I, I think at the fundamental level, you know, what makes you happy is not, I mean, obviously you need money above a certain threshold. Otherwise you, you are preoccupied with surviving, you know, but, but once you cross that threshold, you know, I, I, it, it's really not uh, something I care about. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for that. So the final question here in the lightning round is if people want to learn more from you or if they wanted to get in touch with you, what would you have them do? Oh, they can uh, find uh, all my writings uh, linked on my website, personal website at Harvard. And uh, such as the commentaries I have in Scientific American, the papers I write, the scientific papers, and links to videos, uh, some selected videos that I have. Um, and, and also my history uh, description of my career. And they can also find my email address there and then send me an email if they want to discuss anything important. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm open to responding. Awesome. Thank you for that. Okay. So as uh, I do still have just a few questions for you about writing and the creative process, but before we go there, I just want to share with you that as uh, a gesture of gratitude for sharing so generously of your time with me and everyone listening, um, I've made a hundred dollar micro loan to a woman entrepreneur who's actually in Toga. She's a 32 year old married mother of five who sells donuts. She's, <laughs> she sells donuts. So she'll buy wheat and, and flour oil and bags of charcoal and in this way enhance the quality of life for her. That's amazing. And, and uh, thank you so much for doing that. Um, you made my day, so to speak. Well, thank you. Okay, so the final questions here, just about uh, writing, creativity. Uh, I want to start with, with this question. You, you, know, you talked about the time growing up on a farm and you'd have the books and you'd read philosophy and so forth. But when did you first know you were a writer or that you wanted to write? Oh, that's interesting. Um, actually, at a very young age, uh, when I was a teenager, I used to, used to write my thoughts and uh, put the notes in, in the drawer. And uh, then when I left home, I left the, the village and my mother kept those and put them when they sold the farm just uh, about five years ago. Uh, she collected all those pieces of paper and put them in a box. And in one of my visits to Israel, I looked into the box and uh, decided to borrow a few of those notes and uh, showed it to a friend of mine who is a writer. And I asked him, do you think it's worth uh, putting out? And he said, some of, some of these thoughts when you were a teenager are quite interesting. And uh, so we, together we collaborated and put it in a book. Uh, were written in Hebrew, but then uh, I translated it and put it on Kindle. And uh, uh, it's over there right now. It, it, it wasn't a commercial enterprise. So I, I didn't make an actual published book out of it. So really my first popular level book is the new one. And, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm really struck by the fact that, you know, this is really my very first popular level book. And a week after it's out, it's, uh, 
you know, it's a bestseller between uh, Michelle and Barack Obama. So that's a complete surprise. Yeah, <laughs> and that's awesome. in my mind, it reflects um, the fact that, you know, I think like the public, you know, I have my common sense appeals to people. Uh, that's a surprise to me because I wouldn't change anything in, in what I say, irrespective of how many people like it. Uh, but it illustrates the fact that I think, uh, I mean, the way I think appeals to people, uh, which is a surprise, but it's a pleasant surprise. And I'm very grateful for that. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a surprise because, you know, I think about it, I put it out and people say they agree or, or they like it. And it's not clear to me why, but, but it's sort of like you, are, you have a clock, a watch, and somehow it's synchronized with other watches without you tuning it in the first place to be synchronized with other watches but it shows the same time. So that's a good experience, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Who has been influential in your development as a writer and what have you learned from them? Yeah, so again, it dates back to when I was a teenager. I used to read the philosophy books and, and uh, also literature written by mostly existentialists. Uh, I remember Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus and, uh, you know, they wrote... Uh, in a way that appealed to me because they described a human existence as a state that should be authentically pursued, like uh, without pretending, without pretensions, without uh, trying to portray an image of yourself that is different than you actually are. And, and uh, just living life the way it is, you know, and not uh, somehow uh, uh, masquerading it or, or putting some makeup on it like most people do. Um, yeah. And that appealed to me. And, and I, you know, I kept that sense uh, throughout. And uh, I also read uh, Beckett, you know, Samuel Beckett. Uh, I remember that, uh, you know, his early writings uh, were never published and people, uh, he managed, I mean, one of his early books, the first book was published after his death. He got the Nobel prize. Also Jean-Paul Sartre got the Nobel prize in literature, but he declined it. He said, pay attention to this uh, selection committee that gets its uh, self-importance out of giving me a prize. You know, I'm, I don't care about that, their opinion. I mean, I, I do what I do. And he just declined the Nobel Prize in literature. And, you know, that's a, a noble thing to do, to basically admit that you, you're doing it because of the substance, not because of the uh, recognition. And and, you know, it's just like uh, basketball coaches often say, keep your eyes on the ball, not on the audience, which is pretty much what I'm trying to do. Yeah. With, with this book, with Extraterrestrial, what was the moment that you knew you were going to write this book? Oh, that was when uh, the response of the scientific community. And I just thought, you know, uh, if they were to show me evidence or come up with better ideas to explain these anomalies that we see, I was driven just by the evidence. I was not driven by anything else. And, you know, and, and, there is, and the response of some people was hostile. Without a good reason, they would ridicule it. That made little sense to me, you know. I start the book by mentioning an anecdote about me as a kid, you know, entering the first day of class mm -hmm. and looking around. And I saw the kids jumping up and down on the desks. And I was thinking, does it make sense to jump up and down on the desks? You know, why would they do that? Is, is that a pleasurable thing to do? And then the teacher came into the class and said, 
look at Avi, how well behaved he is. Why can't you all be like him? And I was thinking to myself, I'm not well behaved. I'm just thinking whether it makes sense to jump up and down. If, if I convince myself that it makes sense, I would do it as well. It's, it's not like I was trying to be different and well behaved. Uh, and that pretty much reflects my life, you know, in, in the sense that I don't follow the crowd. I don't do what others are doing just because they're doing it. I'm trying to think for myself whether it makes sense. And, and that's practically what I did with this book. You know, I expressed my common sense and, you know, I'm glad that it appeals to, to many people. Yeah. Well, you have, you are prolific in your production of academic papers and books. What is your writing routine like? What are your habits like? Oh, I just need the, no dis, distractions. Uh, so, for example, uh, you know, before the pandemic, I would get most of my ideas in the shower when nobody interrupts. The problem is when I went to work, uh, you know, I have leadership positions. I was chair of the astronomy department, director of two centers, uh, serving on the president's council of advisors on science and, and uh, technology, uh, uh, head of the uh, uh, chair of the uh, advisory board for the Starshot project. So all of these things I did as a service to, you know, improve my environment, uh, not as a status symbol, but just to, to serve uh, the community that I belong to, to make it better. And uh, they would take my time and, and people would interrupt all the time and ask me to do things for them. I felt like a server in a restaurant. You know, people ask you to bring this and that and, and do this and that. And that takes uh, your attention away from creative work. Mm -hmm. uh, so when the pandemic started, actually, all these distractions uh, evaporated suddenly and I had much more time for creative work. So actually the last uh, year has been the most productive in my, in my life because I don't get these uh, disruptions. Uh, nobody enters my, my room and asks for something. And I just, I can dedicate my attention to, and, and creative work for me just bubbles out. You know, it's not something I make an effort for and it just comes out. If I have the free time, then, any day, any time, I can write something new. And uh, that's pretty much the routine, that I just need no dis distractions. I just need to sit down and uh, not be interrupted. Oh, that's great. What advice or encouragement would you offer someone who is in the middle of their own book process or they're, maybe they haven't begun, but it's something they aspire to do? What do you say to somebody in that situation? Well, I think it's most important to identify a theme for your book that um, has uh, something new to offer that uh, was not covered uh, extensively elsewhere and uh, so that uh, it's unique. Uh, the message is unique and, and, and also that it will resonate with uh, the lives of people, the way they think about important issues. And uh, I mean, of course, this is a very general statement, but at the same time, it's important to be authentic, not to pretend and just uh, convey what you truly believe in, you know, because people can see through it uh, if you're pretending, I mean, these days. And, you know, if you're just authentic, I found that, you know, the best policy for me to be, for example, department chair, just to give you an example, and the same applies to writing, is not to hide anything, not to manipulate people, not to try and uh, give it, uh, an image that is different than reality, because... People can see through it. And if they suspect that you're manipulating them, 
then the process is much less efficient because you have to convince them to do things. And if they don't believe you, if they suspect that you are fooling them, um, it doesn't work out that you spend a lot of time repairing damage that you created by not being sincere, you know. And my policy from the beginning of starting to be department chair was to be straightforward and transparent, to, to lay out the truth without hiding anything. And I thought it would never work out because in politics you have to hide some things, otherwise you don't accomplish anything. But it worked wonderfully in the sense that people believed me. They never thought I'm fooling them. What you see is what you get. And my term as department chair was extended twice. So I was the longest serving department chair for nine years. The usual term is three years. And um, I think the same applies to your writing if you are sincere and honest. You know, that would resonate with some people. Yeah, no doubt. What, what surprised you in the process of creating this book in particular, Extraterrestrial? What did you learn either about yourself, about the creative process, about your subject, about the publishing world, like anything? What, what surprised you or, or what did you learn in the process? Well, I should say, so I wrote this, this um, scientific paper about Oumuamua and it attracted a lot of attention, there was a media storm. That was really surprising, the amount of attention that they got, you know, and I describe it in the book a little. Um, it, was, it got to the point where, you know, just a, a week or so after the paper was published, I had to give a lecture, a public lecture at a, a conference in Berlin uh, and uh, the Falling Walls, which is a major conference that brings in scientists uh, from many different disciplines. Uh, so I got to Berlin after, you know, after a TV, a TV crew stood in, in my front door and asked me, do you think aliens exist? And <laughs> I said, I have to go to the airport. And they said, well, just tell us. And then I got there and I, uh, you know, I, I, I saw an email from uh, Good Morning America asking me to uh, get interviewed. And then I went to dinner uh, and at dinner suddenly all the people that I've never met, you know, from other disciplines said, we know you. You, you, you were just in the news. And that was a surprise to me. Anyway, wow. the, the, the um, strange thing is that there, was a lit there were several literary agents that approached me and one of them was insisting and asking me, do you think about writing a book? And I said, no, I don't have time for that. You know, I'm a scientist. I don't want to write a book right now. I have too many things. And she said, her name is Leslie Meredith. And she said, no, you have to write a book. You know, this is important. And, and I said, no, I don't want to write a book. I'll get back. And then she came back to me and convinced me that it's important. And uh, I said, okay, well, let's give it a try. And we had a book proposal and it was accepted. And, and then I started writing. And I'm really grateful for her for uh, convincing me to do it because it was very re rewarding. You know, I, I wrote the book and to see now the response of the public to this book and the fact that it's a completely different experience than just being a scientist, you know, in the sense that there is a huge crowd out there, a huge audience. And um, it gives me great satisfaction in the sense that I can promote the recognition that science is important, that the excitement about science to young people. And, and I get emails all the time that young people are enthusiastic about what I say. And, you know, that, that's something that I could not have, reached without writing the book. Uh, and uh, that was a surprise. Yeah, that's great. Well, I know it, we often think that writing is a very 
solitary endeavor. And in some ways it, it is, no doubt. <laughs> but also books are ultimately very collaborative. And you mentioned Leslie, but I wonder if you'll tell me about what was the team like yeah. all the way from maybe a thought partner early on to just generate ideas to no, the so, research structure, all of that. How did other so, people um, factor in? You see, the book, um, I wrote a lot about this subject, either in Scientific American or I had some notes because of the exposure to the media early on. Mm -hmm. And the, the main challenge was to take all of this material, which I collected in a huge PDF file, and edit it and, and, and assemble it to something that would look compelling. Mm -hmm. And I'm grateful to the people that worked with me on that. Um, there was much more material that I left out and, um, you know, when you are very close to that material, it's difficult for you sometimes to see what to leave out. And people that come from outside, you know, see it in a better perspective. So I'm really grateful to the team of people that worked with me on that. But, uh, you know, just it was interesting because after things were trimmed out, suddenly I would see a phrase made and I would say, wow, that's, that's profound. Did I actually say that? And I went back and found it somewhere, you know, like yeah. I would forget what I, I myself said at some point and wrote down. And so for me, I mean, I was moved by the final product because when I read it, you know, a year later, uh, I recognized things that resonate with me very authentically, even though a lot of other things were trimmed out by the editing process, but uh, altogether, the book is me. So if you read it, you get a good sense of, my, of who I am. And that's why I'm so happy about it because, you know, I wanted to convey that message. And the, the fact that it's appealing to people means that, you know, I, I'm not uh, completely wrong about uh, what I advocate for. And what you see in the book is pretty much me. It's not, there is nothing missing. You know, and, and if you read the book, you pretty much know who I am. I mean, yeah. in, all, in all respects. Yeah, I, for what it's worth, I, I definitely think it's a book that you deserve to be proud of. I, yeah. <laughs> Thank it's you. Good. Now the question is what to do next. And, um, you know, since I finished this book, there are a, a large number, like 50 Scientific American articles that I wrote, and they carry the seeds of the next, the next book. So I'm thinking awesome. about it now. That's great. Well, Avi, this has been a tremendous privilege and a pleasure. I'm really grateful to you for sharing. Uh, I hope I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope I've asked you some things that you oh, haven't yeah. necessarily shared. <laughs> yeah, it was wonderful, and uh, you know, I had more. I had 150 interviews over the past few weeks, and wow. yours was very original. I must say, and I enjoyed it tremendously. Thank you so well, much. Well, thank that. you for being so open. I know a lot of this was not right down the center of the astrophysics and you know the I mean, all that, but. what you asked about are the core issues and i i really enjoy them yeah um and maybe we do this again with your next book <laughs> yeah i will be delighted um, yeah. so thank you for the excellent uh, questions and insights i, I learned from this uh, interview oh, thank i'm you. so glad thank you Hey, before you take off, I just want to extend an invitation to you to head over to goodliving.com to check out our transformational coaching program. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life still isn't working for many people. Whether it's here in the developed world where we deal with depression, anxiety, loneliness, addiction, divorce, 
unfulfilling jobs or relationships that don't work, or in the developing world where so many people still don't have access to basic things like clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or they live in conflict zones. There are a lot of people on this planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, or even if your life is working, but you have the sense that it could work better, consider signing up for the School for Good Living's Transformational Coaching Program. It's something I've designed to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated, or you've gone through a divorce, or you've gotten married, headed into retirement, starting a business, been married for a long time, whatever. No matter where you are in life, this nine-month program will give you the opportunity to go deep in every area of your life, to explore life's big questions, to create answers for yourself in a community of other growth-minded individuals. And it can help you get clarity and be accountable to realize more of your unrealized potential. It can also help you find and maintain motivation. In short, it's designed to help you live with greater health, happiness, and meaning so that you can be, do, have, and give more. Visit goodliving.com to learn more or to sign up today.